Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the abrading of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Well, good morning. Um, my name's um, Luke. I'm um, one of the uh, elders here um, at Life Church, and we are continuing our One Peter series. Um, I think I'm quite good at small talk. I think that's one of the skills I have. Some people like small talk, but some people don't. I was at a birthday. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I was at um, uh, uh, someone's birthday, a friend's birthday, a few years ago, uh, and I was having a conversation. And you might know, you know, you have a few questions you go to, don't you? A few things you think maybe this will be good lines of conversation. And I said to this person, um, "So, you know, do, do you like music? No. Okay. Um, uh, have you got family nearby? Not really." Oh, okay. Um, are, you, are you interested? Uh, what kind of hobbies do you have? Do you, like, do you like video games? I read medieval philosophy. Oh, okay. Sometimes you have a conversation with a person who is so different from you, it can be really hard to understand them. They're just so different from you that it's so tricky to understand how do they see life. This morning, we're going to read words written from a real person the Apostle Peter, to real people, Christians across the Roman Empire, particularly modern-day Turkey, in the first century AD. And they're people who we've explored over the last few weeks, in many ways, have things in common with us. They're followers of Jesus. And they're also in a context, though different than ours, which is increasingly hostile to some of the things they believe. But we mustn't forget that there are many things about them, about these original hearers of 1 Peter, which will be very alien to us. Contexts that are very different. Think about it. They lived nearly 2,000 years old. That's a, uh, no, they didn't live nearly 2,000 years old. They lived nearly 2,000 years ago. Not just that, they lived in a very different part of the world. And so actually even then, they had a more Eastern outlook on life rather than our Western outlook on life. And of course, they lived in the shadow of the Roman Empire at its pinnacle, a very different cultural and political context than the one that we live in. And so yes, there might be many things we have in common, but there are other things about us that just couldn't be more different. And in our passage today, Peter doesn't just address the whole church he actually addresses a particular group of marginalised individuals in the fledgling church. Who were they? They were women who were taking great risks to follow Jesus. They were women who had converted to Christianity despite the fact that their husbands had not. 
That seems to be the primary context of this passage. He talks about women uh, who are married to men who have not obeyed the word. That's him saying who are not believers. So why do I mention this gulf in the context between them and us? It's because it's easy. It can be easy with modern Western eyes to scorn or scoff or dismiss a passage like this very quickly. But this passage was a passage of profound encouragement to the original women that Peter was speaking to. And I believe if we do the work, it can be a profound encouragement for all of us today. I also want to recognize that this will touch on a number of topics and themes for women particularly, but men as well. I pray, single or married, this will speak to all of us. But this will touch on a number of topics which actually will just be very raw. And there are things that I'll be aware of in the room and there'll be many things that I am not. And so I pray that God would use this to build up, to encourage and to bless us in who he is as we go through it. So shall I pray quickly? And then we'll dive in. Father God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. Father, I pray we would see the good that you've shown in your scriptures. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God that it's useful for us for teaching, rebuking, for training in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear. Father, that you would do healing today, that you would encourage today, and that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if we're to understand why a passage like this was in such an encouragement to the original women that Peter was speaking to, we actually have to do the hard work of trying to understand at least a little bit what their lives would have been like. Try and bridge a little bit of that gap. And to understand this, or at least an important part of understanding this, is to understand a concept that is very alien to our modern Western worldview. It's actually still very much held in different parts of the world, but it's understanding the idea of a household. Now, I don't mean bricks and mortar that we live in. I mean the social structure that for many ancient cultures and many modern cultures has been the bedrock of society. So what was a household? Well, a household, for example, in the Roman civilization, which is the context we're looking at, was quite simple. It was a freed man who had a wife, who had children, and who had servants. And he was responsible for the household, and everyone in the household had their role to play. Now, that sounds quite simple, but this structure really was viewed as the fabric and bedrock of the Roman Empire. This was the civilization's makeup, as it were. And any, uh, any kind of attack on the household felt like an attack on the very nature of being a person in this context. And so as a wife in the, in the household, you, like everyone else, would have had a particular expectation. The, the, the women that Peter was writing to would have had a particular expectation and role. And that was many, and you can read lots about that. But there are two things that are really important to know about that context. Firstly, a wife was expected to worship the gods of her husband. This was a, a pagan um, society where they worshipped the Roman gods, many different gods. And whatever gods your husband worshipped, you were expected to worship yourself. A second important thing to know is that a wife was expected to have the same friends as her husband. They socially went around in the circles that her husband had connected with and created. And so if a woman converted to Christianity, it presented two very real problems. 
Firstly, this wife kept on going out to meet a group of people who the husband didn't know who they were, and they would do these weird things called love feasts. We actually call that communion these days, but back then they called them love feasts. And so there would have been talk around the town saying, have you heard that so-and-so's wife sneaks out and hangs out with those weirdos? This would have been a very real social embarrassment for some, uh, for some husbands in this context. But more than that, some of these women who had converted to Christianity would have been seen as dangerous. Because if you didn't worship the gods, if you didn't keep Mars and Apollo sweet, well, what happens? Well, if you don't keep the gods sweet, well, famine happens. Disaster happens, or so many thought. And so when problems came, well, everyone around them started pointing fingers at those who didn't worship the Roman gods, which meant they started pointing fingers at the Christians. So if you converted to Christianity, it's to point at you when things go wrong. And so for women converting to Christianity in the first century, it was a big deal. It was scary. It wasn't a decision that anyone made lightly. There was no sense that they just dipped their toes into Christianity, that they went along to church once a month thinking, maybe it's for me, maybe it's not. No, if they were in, they were all in because the bar was so high, the cost was so high to follow Jesus. And so this is the group that Peter is primarily writing to in these verses. This is the group that Peter knows need profound encouragement to hold on to Christ because of the cost to them to follow him. And so this is why he writes what he writes. Let's go back to the text and start from verse one to two. Likewise, wives, submit to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter tells these, these women, these Christian women who are married to pagan hus husbands to continue to submit to and respect their own husbands. These women have had their lives turned up. Sorry, these women have had their lives turned upside down, haven't they? They met their saviour, the one who has dignified them, the one who has caused them to be born again to a living hope. But while they live with that hope in their hearts, they still have to ask themselves a question as everyone does, what's it look like to live with the hope and eternal promises now? What does it look like to live now, given that my now involves having a husband who doesn't follow Jesus and who possibly isn't too happy that I do. Maybe these women could make a clean break, you might think. Maybe they could divorce their husbands and, and, and leave and maybe find a Christian man and start a Christian home. And wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be what, what would kind of glorify God more? To be honest, most of these women couldn't afford to do that. Most of these women didn't have the freedom to do that. But what's interesting is Peter doesn't encourage that anyway. Peter actually encourages something quite different. He encourages them in a very similar way that he's been encouraging different groups in the early church over the last few weeks, in the last few passages that we've seen. Like he encouraged servants, Christian servants. Like he encouraged actually all Christians in the kind of political environment they're in. And what did he encourage them? He encouraged them to, I'm looking at Garrett in the eyes, hashtag, 
He doesn't remember my sermon from two weeks ago. Okay, we need to publicly shame Garrett. Come on, Garrett, I expected more than you. We need to be more volcano, thank you. I, how is it not on all your social media feeds by now, Garrett? I was relying on you, my young friend. Um, what we talked about two weeks ago is Peter sets up this passage that we're in today as he does the big picture of what we look at today. He reminds all these different contexts that pressure will come in life. Pressure will come because you're a Christian. And when the pressure comes, we don't let the pressure force us to fade into the background. No. And we don't roll up our sleeves and say, well, I'm going to take them. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to do things the way I think things should be done. We don't do that either. No, Peter encourages us like a volcano. When pressure comes, we lift the eyes of other people around us upwards. We live in such a way that shows Jesus to the world. And so Peter encourages these women, you have an opportunity to show Jesus to your families. It will not be easy. It will be hugely challenging at points but it is worth it. And so he encourages them, be subject to your own husbands. In the household worldview, which the Romans had, the ancient Israelites had, many cultures and contexts around the world today, some of which some of you will have come from, from different nations. In a household worldview, the husband has responsibility to represent, to care for, and to protect the whole household. And the wife has a responsibility to submit or be subject to, it's the same word, to submit to their husbands as they support and help him in his responsibility. And so what is Peter doing here? What is Peter doing here to tell and encourage these new converts to submit to their pagan husbands? Is he saying, wives, just keep your heads down? look like every other Roman wife and just pretend like nothing is different? Is he saying, wives, just accept your place in life and stop complaining? No, I don't think he's doing that at all. Because while on the surface, he might be encouraging to continue certain social norms, submission to husbands, he might be encouraging them to continue in that. Under the surface, the reason for doing it, he totally subverts. The reason he uh, the reason for doing that, Peter totally subverts. Peter can't be calling them to fade into the background because everything he's been saying for the verses leading up to it is don't fade into the background. No, Peter's call to be subject to their own husbands is not from a sense of duty nor of social expectation. It's not from a sense of fear or coercion. Peter's call to submit at its heart, I believe, has great dignity and purpose in it. Peter's call for these women to submit to their husbands, I believe, has great dignity in it. Why? Well, the first reason may pass many of us by, but he speaks to these women directly. Now, that was not done in that context. Peter doesn't go round them by speaking to their husbands. He doesn't belittle them. He speaks directly to them. And so he dignifies their agency, their ability to decide what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's the second thing he does. He calls them to submit, but he calls them to submit willingly, voluntarily. Peter does not threaten them. Peter does not shame them. Peter does not put anything in the context that says, you must do this or else. Instead, actually, his context is a context of freedom. A few verses earlier in the passage we read two weeks ago, in chapter 2, 16, 
Peter says this to all believers. This is the context. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter reminds all believers, men and women, Christ has won them great freedom. We now have the opportunity to use that freedom for the sake of the gospel. And so he calls these Christian women to willingly submit to their husbands. It's also profoundly important to remember that Christ himself dignified submission. Christ, when here on earth, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Christ on earth said, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. He even went to the cross for the sake of all of us. Actually, this is the point that Peter is making in the passage we heard last week. The verses directly before the ones this week, he points all believers to Jesus. And he says in verse 21 of chapter 2, For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Christ set an example of humility and submission for all of us to follow in our own context. So these women, these Christian women that Peter is writing to in the first century, they can stand before God and say, I followed my Lord. I lived like Christ. More than that, though, the Bible itself also dignifies submission in marriage because that is something that isn't just a cultural quirk of the Roman Empire, but the Bible says is God's design in creation. Now, don't hear me wrong. Like all created things, sin has badly twisted and corrupted these things. But the Bible still shows actually headship and submission is not just a cultural quirk of some ancient worldviews and modern worldviews, but something which when redeemed and understood through godly eyes is for his good and for his glory. Now, I'm not going to dive into that today because I did a sermon on that on Ephesians 5, um, which you can listen back to. That was in November last year. Um, but I will also um, really commend, if you want to dive more into questions like that, Steph Liston, who was on the screen um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's one of the leaders of Relational Mission. He's written a book called Gender Quality. Uh, I'm halfway through. I don't like recommending things I haven't finished reading, but I know him well. And this is a really, really helpful book. So if you want to dive into that more, um, I'd really recommend that. And so Peter's call to submit, I genuinely believe, is rich with dignity. But one of the most important things that give us, gives its dignity is that his call to submit has purpose. Doing a mindless task isn't dignifying, is it? Doing something for the sake of it is not dignifying. But Peter doesn't say that. He says there is great purpose in what you're doing. And what is that purpose? Is that some might be one to the words by your conduct. The purpose is the gospel going forward. The purpose is that some might be saved. Peter encourages these wives to submit so that their husbands may be saved. And so Peter calls them not to just put up with their husbands, but to live in ways that point to Jesus, to live lives of respectful and pure conduct, not acting in hostility or resentment, but grace, forgiveness, and patience, looking to support and encourage their husbands wherever possible, even with his flaws and failings, living as Jesus would, with the prayer and hope that maybe one day it was Jesus that they would see.
We will come back to specific applications for women and wives in our modern context uh, a little bit later, because that's obviously a very important application of these verses. But let's just take a step back. And actually, I think these verses have huge application for any of us who have a family member, husband or wife, father, mother, children, who don't yet follow Jesus. Because I think the provocation here is to say, what is our heart motive when we make choices? For people, What is our heart motive when we go into things? Let me give you an example. The Christmas Day argument. We all have them. The Christmas Day argument. Do we want to be right or do we want to show someone Jesus? The parenting clash where your styles don't line up. Do we want to be right or do we want to show someone Jesus? When mum or dad sends us to our room, for those of us who are a little bit younger, hopefully, and you think that just wasn't proportionate, do you want to be right or do in humility say, Lord, I want, to, I want to show my mom or dad Jesus? And for those of you who quietly, patiently, year after year, show grace and patience and love to your families with the hope that they will one day see Jesus, there is great encouragement here. This is a precious thing in the sight of God. This is a dignified use of life. It's not years wasted but it's precious in the eyes of your father. Whether they're one for the Lord or not are in his hands, but he is pleased with how you live. Let's continue to verse three and four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so back to these first century Christian women, wives of husbands who were not believers. Peter continues to encourage them by subverting another cultural expectation that is just as problematic today as it was then. Beauty. Beauty is a good thing. It is a gift from God. Beth and I visited um, Vancouver a number of years ago. And any of you who've been to um, Vancouver, I mean, Canada is a stunning country. Uh, but there's a place called Stanley Park and you can stand and the forest is behind you and the sea is in front of you and the mountains are in the distance. And it's just a stunning place where you think, wow, what beauty in creation. What wonderful things that God has made. And physical beauty and attraction between the sexes is also a good and godly gift if used as he intended. It is good for a husband to delight in his wife, to tell her she is beautiful and that he has eyes for no other. That's a good and godly thing. But what we find in our culture is that beauty becomes commoditized. It becomes something to be used. Sex sells. TV knows it. Instagram knows it. Let's be honest, lots of what's on social media are memes and bikini photos because they know this fuels the algorithms. And so beauty stops being a God-given part of a woman and becomes a defining attribute. Our culture uses sex. And when sex is the currency, there is a big pressure to fit in ourselves, women and men, and use it. And these first century women knew those pressures too. Yes, in a different way. I mean, I presume they didn't have Instagram, but they still knew those pressures. 
Maybe the pressure to keep their husband sweet. Maybe the pressure to feel good about themselves by dressing or looking a certain way to meet social expectations. But here again, Peter totally subverts these cultural norms, both then and now. Jewellery, nice clothing, they're fine. Peter doesn't ban them in these passages. He just says, actually, any beauty that you see with your eyes is just an echo of the hidden beauty that's really important. He says there's something much deeper that you really want to be focusing on. And so Peter makes profound points as he compares this hidden beauty to the external beauty. Because you see, external beauty is just that. It's surface level. If we chase after superficial things, we become superficial people. And worse than any of that, beauty is something which is perishable. My goodness, that's a painful thing when we realise that. These things are perishable. But chasing after inner beauty is of much value because inner beauty is Christ-likeness. Some people take offence that Peter encourages these women to have a quiet and gentle spirit. It sounds to some like he's encouraging women to be doormats and passive. But that couldn't be further from what Peter's saying, I believe. How does the Lord famously describe himself in Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. To be gentle is to be like Christ. Look at the stories of him, the humility, the kindness, the graciousness, the encouragement, the gentleness. Gentleness is an attribute of Christ-likeness. And what about quiet? Is that about being passive? Is that about not piping up? Is that about fading into the background? Well, it can't be, can it? It's not what Peter's talking about at all. In the context of all that Peter is trying to say, it can't be be a dormouse. No, quietness isn't passivity. Quietness is a stillness of the soul because you know the one you trust in. Quietness is a stillness of the soul. It's to do with who you're trusting in. It's to do with who you're trying to please. You see, those who seek external beauty are seeking to please another. Maybe the attention of a man. Maybe the opportunity to move up in the world the desire to not feel rejected or ugly. And all those things are understandable motives, but they're empty. However, those who seek inner beauty choose to please God. This beauty Peter is calling them to, this Christ-likeness, what does the passage say? It says it's very precious in the sight of God. It's very precious in the sight of God. And there is a peace in a person that comes when they know whom they please, and that they please him. That's what quietness and gentleness is. It is Christ-likeness. Let me ask you a question. Everyone in the room, is Jesus lovely to you? Is Jesus precious to you? Does delighting him delight your heart? Because let's be real, there's a pressure for all of us, but particularly women in our society, to fit into this world, to use our sexuality as currency, to flirt, to feel a little known, to dress in a particular way to get attention. I mean, I was a youth leader for six years, and it breaks my heart, the pressure on young women to send pictures of themselves or to be coerced into things that maybe they're not ready to do with boyfriends because this is the culture we live in. 
where sex is currency and beauty is commoditized. But my dear friends, Peter speaks to encourage his listeners then and now. That's not true beauty. That's not true beauty. And while we can't change the people who are coercing and pressuring outside of ourselves, we can know what true beauty is. It is Christ-likeness, which is precious in the sight of God. Let's continue in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so if you're still in any doubt whether Peter expects wives and women to be shrinking violets, he ends his exhortation to the women before he moves on to the men in a profound way. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter's call to these women, these women whose lives were so costly, the lives that follow Jesus were so costly, he says to them, be fearlessly courageous. Fear can so easily drive us, can't it? And I know for many of us, anxiety and worry are like a chokehold that grip us at different times in our lives. And so this encouragement to be fearless, despite the fact there are many things to be afraid of in the world, is a very relevant provocation to all of us. But it is particularly true for those of you who are married to men who are not believers or who are backsliding in their faith. To be in that marriage, let alone to learn to submit or to support and love is a huge challenge. And I don't know the experience of you. I obviously can't do that. But I know that there will be questions. What if this is life now? What if things won't change? What if this is my law? And Peter knows the frightening things that it costs to follow Jesus in these contexts. And he encourages you, as he does his original hearers, look to women like Sarah. Look to women like Sarah. You may know the story of Sarah and Abraham, you may not, but Sarah's life wasn't easy. Her husband left the land where all the generations before had been living, and they went from place to place, often in very dangerous contexts. On top of that, it wasn't like her husband was a superhero. Abraham had some glaring flaws that were very difficult to live with, I'm sure. And that's, that's plain in black and white in the book of Genesis. And if that wasn't enough, Sarah couldn't have children. And in that time... And in that culture, the shame and humiliation that came from not being able to have children was nothing like what it feels like today. It's huge today, but just unbelievable in that culture. For Sarah to trust in God took enormous courage. Yes, she was a flawed woman herself. Yes, she had wobbles in her faith, and we read that in Genesis. But to live day to day meant trusting, not in a perfect husband, not trusting in herself, but trusting in God. How does Peter describe her? As a holy woman who hoped in God. I want to make one point clear, actually, just as, um, yeah, in relation to all of this, but just something quite clear. I don't believe Peter is saying in any of these passages that women who are experiencing physical violence should just be brave and carry on living like that. I don't think that's at all what Peter's doing here. From the wider context, I think it's clear 
that Peter primarily had in his mind social persecutions, mocking, scorn, horrible things, but not physical violence. Um, there's a number of reasons I believe that, but particularly verse 7 we're going to come to in a second. When he addresses Christian husbands, the only men he could address, he makes very clear you do not use your physical strength against your wife. And so if that is you, if you are in a, rela- a relationship where you feel unsafe, please do something about it. Please get help. Um, you can speak to me. You can speak to Carol, who's our safeguarding lead. Um, you can speak to a number of the agencies that want to help, or the police, of course. But, but please do get help in that. But actually widening um, that out more broadly, if in any way you are feeling, actually, the relationship I'm in right now is really challenging for a number of reasons, and they can be quite different, we must be a church who can care for one another. We must be a church who can be there for each other. So I, I really do encourage you, bring the people alongside you who you need. If you're like, I don't know who those people are, um, Come speak to me, one of the elders. Come speak to somebody you know. We want to build family so we can support each other, pray for each other, advise one another, and care for each other in very, very challenging times. So I I just wanted to make that point um, clear before we moved on. So going back, I'm, I'm the brother of two sisters. I'm the son of a mother. I'm the husband of my wife. I'm about to be the father of a daughter. This stuff is real. There's a a great extent I cannot live the experiences that 50% of this room can live. But this stuff is real and it's in the Bible because it matters. My dear sisters, God is calling you to be courageous. God is calling you to show Jesus to the world in a way that you uniquely can, to live lives where those around you see Christ making impacts in the world which sometimes will seem on the surface to be imperceptible. But you do not know the deep ruptures in hearts that your lives can cause, the wonderful things that open people up to seeing Jesus. And if you are married, to choose to support, help, submit to and love your husbands, despite their flaws, whether they're believers or whether they're not, takes great courage. That is not a trivial thing. Not letting fear drive you to act in defensiveness or from insecurity, but putting your hope in God. Not in your husband, but in God, first and foremost. Because he is the one who can be trusted, who can be found in the day of trouble. He never leaves you and never forsakes you. And he gives us one another, the church, to be true family, brothers and sisters in Christ together, to weep together, to strengthen one another, to speak truth and to help when in need. And more than that, he himself has gone before us. Christ himself suffered in our place by his wounds. We're not made cheerful and chipper. By his wounds, we are healed. And so with Christ set firmly in our gaze, though there is much to be frightened of in life, you do not have to fear with him. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you with the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Dear husbands, you thought you got off the hook, didn't you? We've had to wait six verses. We almost forgot to read it at the beginning. 
Peter spends most of his time addressing women, and that is very important to notice because these women were having to step out in ways which were incredibly courageous. To live as a Christian in a context where your husband wasn't a Christian, that was hard. That was unbelievably hard. So that's why the focus has been on that group in the fledging church. But now Peter turns to the husbands who he does have an audience with, believing husbands. And he says to them this, and he says to us, any husbands in the room, he says this to us, you are not to be like the husbands all around you. You are called to something much better. Christian husbands are called to be understanding husbands. That's how Peter starts, live with your wives in an understanding way. Not patronizingly settling with, well, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, what can you do? No, we work hard to get to know our wives, understanding their gifts, their desires, their fears, getting to know how they think, how they feel, what they're passionate about, what makes them feel loved. It means listening. It means putting the phone away. It means deliberately scheduling time to be together. It means not waiting for her to tell you her needs, but asking and finding out what are her needs. We must work hard to love our wives. We must work hard to be understanding husbands. One of the reasons for that is because we are different from each other. It does take hard work. You're two unique individuals who've been brought together in marriage. There are big differences, let alone the fact there are differences between the sexes between men and women. One of those differences, on average, is physical size. And Peter directly addresses this. Men are on average larger and stronger, and Peter says a phrase which, again, to our modern sensibilities, makes us cringe when he says the phrase, weaker vessel. Show honour to the woman as the weaker vessel. But this is what I believe he is saying, and this is why we must not dismiss verses like this. Men, many of you will be physically stronger than your wives. Don't you ever use that strength for anything but to care for and protect your wife and your family. You never, ever take advantage of your physical size. Peter gives these husbands and us, those of us who are married in the room, who are believers, He gives strong motivation to love unhindered. Now, this isn't some trivial threat, like a parent saying to their children, no more screen time for the weekend. No, if God is saying your prayers might be hindered, if Peter's saying that uh, through the scripture, this is saying, actually, if if you're flippant about how you're treating your wife, your very communion with God is at threat. I don't quite understand what that means, but that's what it says here. Your prayers will be hindered. He's drawing on Psalm 34 there, but he says your prayers will be hindered. But he also gives a positive motivation to husbands and to wives as well. Work hard at your marriage. Why? Because your wives may be different from you in many different ways, but never forget that in value and dignity before God, they are heirs together of the grace of life. We must remember right back from creation, right back from page one of the Bible, that it is only together as men and women, united and in harmony, in marriage, in nuclear family, and in this eternal family that we call church. It is only together as men and women that the image of God truly shines out. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so in a world like ours that we live in today, 
women, but definitely men too, we must keep working hard to see the flourishing, empowering, and celebration of women and girls across our society. Dismissing unhelpful stereotypes of this is what a woman should be or this is what a wife must do. Working hard to make spaces and cultures where everyone feels welcome and safe. And recognizing the unique contribution of individual women in the workplace, in the family, and my goodness, in the church, to have their contribution take effect. Women and men, heirs of Christ together, heirs of the grace of life. Because women and men, it is only when we are together, as those who are made by him and for him, we can reflect God to the world. We've covered a lot of ground. We've touched on a lot of things. I've spoken about what I believe the passage says, but as I said at the beginning, there'll be a number of individual situations where raw nerves or open wounds would have been touched on. And so please can I encourage you, let this not be the end of the conversation. If that's a conversation that would be helpful to have with me, one of the other elders, that's a conversation to be picked up with trusted friends who you're walking the journey with. Please don't let this be the end of the conversation. But what we're going to do now is we're going to take communion together and we're going to remember Christ. So if the bands want to um, come up, we'll, we'll go back into the time of worship in just a moment. But as we come to take communion, we remember Christ. Christ, the one who submitted to the will of his Father for all the frightening things that were set before him. He took courage scorning the shame of the cross and dying for us. We go to Christ, the one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And yet he was the one who laid down his life that you and I might be brought to the Father. We come to the one who in a true sense, there is never anyone who could be more beautiful than Christ. Sometimes it's funny singing the worship songs we do that it can feel a bit... Smushy. But when we talk about Jesus being beautiful, Jesus being lovely, we're not talking about trivial things. We're talking about the king of the universe. We're talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who all love points to, who all beauty echoes towards, and who all life is made for. And so as you take this bread, his body broken for you, and as you drink the cup, the blood of the covenant, his blood poured out for you. We come to Christ and we worship the one who is truly beautiful. Amen.